So yeah, as you know, I've got a little bit of a throat thing, so today's sermon is going to be a bit deeper than usual. Hope you don't mind. We continue in our Advent series this morning. We're reflecting on the theme of light and darkness, which are some of the major motifs in John's gospel. This is one of the ways that Jesus spiritually classifies the world. In week one, Alistair talked about the light of God coming into the world, and it continues to come. And then last week, Shannon talked about the darkness in the world and the darkness in ourselves and the fact that the light exposes that. This week, we're going to reflect on what happens in a person's life as a result of entering into and abiding in the light. That's the concern of John chapter 8, verse 12. There's a big idea here that I want to unpack for us. This is how I put it. Living in the light doesn't just warm you up, it changes you. Living in the light doesn't just warm you up, it changes you. When the sun rises over a garden, it doesn't just make it possible to see that garden. It actually affects change in the garden. It causes plants to grow and mature and achieve their purpose as plants. So if the sun is out and the seed does not germinate, it does not blossom, then something's wrong. So too with us when we come into the light of Christ. All of this, this theme, this big idea becomes abundantly clear when you illuminate the historical circumstances in which Jesus spoke these words here in John chapter 8. Some of you will know about this. Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem. He's at a big event that happened every year called the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. Now, the Feast of Booths, a major Jewish-Israelite holiday, it looked back to Israel's time of life in the desert. You read about that in the book of Exodus and Numbers. Israel had a nomadic existence at that time, and they lived in tents or booths. So this feast looked back to that event. Now, one of the hallmarks of this feast was a nighttime torchlight ceremony at the great temple in Jerusalem. I found an artist rendering of this to share with you this morning. Okay. (laughs) Is is it uh, out of things not working? Okay. You'll have to imagine. That's all right. God gave us imagination. Okay. This this event happened at the the temple in the center of Jerusalem, which was on a big hill. And what, 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 what it involved was four enormous candelabras, each of them about 75 feet tall. And each of those candelabras had four branches. And at the end of each branch was a bowl that would be filled with oil. And it would be lit on fire. Blazing and bright out into the darkness over the city, right? And this was all at the temple, which was the highest place. So it it was sort of a a big blaze of bright and light over the city. Now these torches at the Feast of Booths, they symbolized God's presence with his people through a pillar of fire, pillar of fire that guided them when they were living in the desert. You read about this in the book of Exodus and Numbers. That pillar of fire was a light for them in the darkness. And it didn't just warm them up. It didn't just make it possible to find their bed at night. It actually led them away from danger. It led them out of the clutches of the Egyptian army. It guarded their lives. It changed their destiny. And it brought into a existence, a new reality. That's what the pillar of fire did. And, and all that's in the background when Jesus stands right here in John 8 and he says, I am the light of the world. That's the story in the background. 
when my light encompasses you, everything will be different. You will be different because my light doesn't just warm you up. It transforms you. It transforms you. Now, these words given in this setting invite us to consider an essential dimension of eternal life, which is a phrase that John's gospel uses a lot. What's that dimension? Our sanctification. Our sanctification. Okay, now many of you might think that sanctification is a word that means uptight, right? It's kind of a starchy word. That word sanctification comes from a Latin word sanctus, which means holy. And so sanctification is about being made holy. Now, I'm very well aware that the topic of holiness and sanctification is not exactly appetizing in our culture right now. If you go into a bookstore, right, and you go and peruse the religion and spirituality section, you'll find all sorts of books about faith, vision, love, spirituality, the soul, hope, etc., etc. But holiness is not in that section. You won't find books on sanctification. I looked all over chapters for one. I couldn't find it, so they must all be sold out. The truth is this. When we hear the word holiness or sanctification, we tend to think of adjectives like grim, austere, pinched and narrow, straitjacket, sanctimonious. Those are the type of words we think of. I mean, if I were to say to Alistair, for example, well, you're so holy, wouldn't exactly be a compliment with it. Of course, that's not, that's not true for Alistair. I mean, in a certain sense, he is holy in some sense, but you know what I mean, right? <clears throat> now, notwithstanding all that, holiness and sanctification are very important to Jesus. This is implicit in John 8. It's something Jesus talks about often. It is something he prays about. If you open your Bibles to John 17, I had the passage there, but if you open them to John 17, you'll find Jesus in a deep and profound prayer. I want to read you a little bit of that prayer. Sanctify them, God, in your truth, for your word is truth. You sent me into the world, and so I have sent them into the world. For their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in truth. That's what Jesus is praying there. That is Jesus' last great prayer before he's crucified. If someone's about to die, they don't tend to talk about trivial things. They don't talk about the weather or what they're going to have for lunch. They talk about the most important things. That's Jesus' situation in John 17. He's about to die. This is the end. And what's on his last breath? Our sanctification. Our holiness. That's what his death and life are all about. That's the end goal of everything that he has done. What does that mean? It means if you want to have anything to do with Jesus, you have to be willing to let him make you holy. You don't have to be holy to come to him. But if you're going to come to him, you have to deal with that because that is what the light is here to do. If someone says to you, the meaning of my life is fishing, I have a lot of friends in South Carolina for whom the meaning of their life is fishing, right? If they say that to you and you want to have a relationship with them, you've got to take up fishing. Otherwise, you're not going to connect. If you want to be connected with Jesus, You need to see that he cares deeply about our holiness and our sanctification. There's no way around it. Let that settle in for a minute. Oh, the slides are back. That's great. Right. 
uh, we're going to proceed to reflect a little bit on sanctification this morning. What does it mean? What does it involve? And in doing this, I just want us to dwell on three words from that single verse in John, chapter 8, verse 12. I want us to dwell on light. I want us to dwell on following. And I want us to dwell on will have. Will have. Light, following, will have. So light. As we've been learning the last few weeks, when John talks about light, he's talking about everything that's good. Everything that's beautiful. He's talking about true freedom. Light is something that ushers us into an existence where we're not just getting by, but where we're flourishing individually and collectively. It's a very positive image. And darkness represents all that is broken and damaged, polluted and sinful in the world. It's an image that's associated with bondage. It's the opposite of light. In this vein, sanctification, you might say, is about our switch from darkness to light in a way that will impact our mind, our will, our emotions, our imagination, everything. Right? To walk in the light is to experience a fundamentally different way of being present in the world. Now, what does that entail concretely? Let me just offer two observations this morning in conversation with things that we learn elsewhere in the New Testament. First of all, living in the light, being made holy means that your life is filled with, increasingly filled with, and controlled by the love and the will of God. More than anything else, anything. That's what we see in Jesus, and he is the definition of holiness. Right? So in the first place, holiness isn't about obeying a long list of rules or trying to be good or to seem good. Right? In the original Old Testament meaning, the word sanctification and holiness refer to someone being set apart for service to God, for use by God. That becomes the single prevailing purpose in their life. And everything else that happens reflects that one purpose. Let me give you an analogy. Consider an Olympic athlete like Ben. Ben could be our live analogy right here. Olympic analogy. They have a single prevailing focus in their life, right? Now, that doesn't mean that that's the, that controls everything they do or that the only thing they do is train. But it does mean that everything that they do is subservient to that goal of going to the Olympics. Right? That goal is going to determine where they live, what they eat, what they do on the weekend. Holiness is like that. The person being sanctified is a person who is increasingly filled with, controlled by the love and the will of God. And they follow it like a thunderbolt. Now we're all filled with something. Something dominates us, something controls our thoughts and imaginations, something dictates our emotions. We know this. Is it the love and goodness of God or is it something else like fear or maybe shame or maybe crazy ambition or envy or pride? What is it? Sanctification is about being emptied of those other things. And who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want that? emptied by being increasingly and wholeheartedly connected to God. That's the first thing. The second thing, sanctification means concretely. When you're being sanctified, right, when you're increasingly devoted to God, there will be external ramifications. Right? Jesus was filled with and controlled by the love of God, and that manifests in all sorts of dazzling and wonderful ways in his life. So too with us. There's going to be an external expression. The great English preacher J.C. Ryle hits the nail on the head when he says this, sanctification is a thing that will always be seen. It will always be seen. How will it be seen? 
not in the sense of having more religious motions in your life, right? If we think about sanctification externally in those terms, then guess what? Michael Corleone, the godfather, would be a very sanctified person, and his picture is not there, so imagine, okay? Imagine, right? I mean, he was, after all, if you know the godfather, he went to church, he went to mass, he said his prayers, he did confession, he gave money, he gave alms, he didn't cuss, he had his kids baptized, but all the while he was engaged in some rather unsavory stuff, exaction and extraction. Sanctification is not just more religious motions or adopting more religious cliché or religious jargon or even just having more religious feelings. It's much more than that. It's a radical change in character, a large-scale reconfiguration of our dreams, our attitudes, our thoughts, and the words and actions that flow out of that. Now, what's the pattern for this? What's the standard for this? I think two things the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ, and the two great commandments. A person being sanctified will increasingly and concretely embody the sacrificial love of Christ and will fulfill the two great commandments, loving God and loving service to neighbor. Now, along these lines, other features of God's law, which you read about in the Old and the New Testament, they can help us envision what sanctification externally looks like. And we need some guidance here, don't we? We humans can have the best of intentions, but we can be quite misdirected and confused even so. We can want to do something, but not know how. Last week, as one does, I was reading about the history of water fountains. Now, originally, water fountains were large structures that were installed in, in Victorian parks, and they had continual water flow, like the ones you see in Europe sometimes. And they had common cups chained to them. And so if you want some water, you'd use that common cup. Much more common than the cup we use in here. So don't go freaking out about taking the common cup at communion. Okay, and now people begin to realize pretty quickly that there was some sanitary risk involved. And so this, this new thing was introduced. It's called a bubbler, which is closer to what we have today, a bubbler. It's like what you find in the hall out there. Now, alas, when the bubbler was introduced, another problem emerged. People would put their lips right on the faucet while drinking, right down on it. Same problem. So they had to create cages over the, the faucet to keep people from putting their head too far down and t contaminating it, right? And we've all been conditioned by this now, so we don't need cages on our bubblers anymore, okay? So we're not only thirsty, but we actually know how to use a water fountain, right? We have evolved as a people. <clears throat> In this, we've got a little illustration for, for how God's law helps us think about external sanctification, right? You don't have to be a Christian to know that you can desire to be loving, for example, and at the same time be doing things that are the opposite of that, right? I mean, just consider a parent who, out of feelings of love, lets their child run wild, right? There are no boundaries. The word no is never said. Now, that parent would probably feel that they're being very loving, but in fact, they're ruining their child's life, and that is the opposite of love. That's the opposite of love. In that same spirit, God's law and the Old and the New Testament, they help us to, to know what real love looks like in action, and they, and they contribute to our sanctification. I mean, that's why Jesus gave the parable of the Good Samaritan. We all know you love your friends, but Jesus says, real love also loves your enemies. That's how God's law is a practical tool for us. It informs our sense of what sanctification involves concretely. And we all want things to be concrete and practical, don't we? 
So when you think of sanctification, don't think of heightened religiosity. Don't think of the Godfather. Think of something else. Think of someone like George Bailey, and it's a wonderful life. I think George Bailey's life is a parable for what external sanctification might look like, of the visible marks of sanctification. You know this, Phil. Cindy and I saw the play last week. I'm going to watch the, the movie in the holidays. A few, a few key scenes I want to mention, like the scene where George foregoes his own opportunity, his own plan to travel around the world and to go to university. Why? Because his dad dies unexpectedly, and somebody's got to take over the cooperative bank. And if George doesn't stay and do it, it'll fold, and all these people will lose their houses, and they'll go live in the slums. Or there's another scene where George and his wife Mary are getting ready to go on their honeymoon, and it's right when the Great Depression starts. And so there's a run on the banks, and everyone wants to take their money out. And if that happens, that cooperative bank, the Bailey Building alone, will fold, and it would ruin that town, and that evil, wicked Mr. Potter would have been in charge of everything. And so what do George and Mary do? They say, here's our $2,000 for our honeymoon. We're going to use it to keep this cooperative bank open. Now, you can't get through that film, at least I can't, without being moved to tears. Because we know real love when we see it. It tears us up inside. That's the true effect of true sanctification. That's real goodness. Christ's holiness in us will work its way out. It gets paid forward in the world in a way that blesses those around us. Increased religiosity does not melt anyone's heart, but true sanctification does. And that is why I cry every year when I watch It's a Wonderful Life. And some of you do too, probably. That's what Jesus is praying about in John 17. That's what it means to walk in the light. To be so given to God that the signs and the symptoms of sin in our lives cannot but fade. Things like fear and shame, slander and gossip, avarice, complaining, ingratitude, lust, gluttony, envy, autonomy, wanting to be in control. We all know those things. They're part of our existence every day, every hour, and if you're like me, sometimes every minute. And I dare say we'd be glad to get rid of them. Because when they begin to evaporate, we can be agents of micro-redemption in the world, just like George Bailey. We can be candles in dark places. That's what sanctification involves externally. That's what Jesus Christ is here to do. And that should make us glad in the depths of our soul, which is why a sanctified life, contrary to all the negative oppressions out there, is actually the happiest of lives. Do you see? Let's go to our second word now, follow. With this word, we're going to reflect a little bit about the means of sanctification, how sanctification happens in our lives. Now, this word follow in chapter 8, verse 12, it has a reference, right? Who's, who's following? Who's the one doing the following? Is it God? No, it's us. Jesus is talking to humans. What does that mean? When it comes to being transformed by the light, we participate. We have a part to play. That's the very same thing that Paul says in Romans chapter 6, Verse 19, when he says this, For just as you once presented yourselves to slaves of impurity and lawlessness, so now present yourselves to slaves of righteousness, which leads to sanctification. Paul's just elaborating on what is implicit in Jesus' words here in Romans and John 8. We have a part to play in our sanctification. Now, what does that entail? Right? That's the big question right now. And it's something that is very easily misconceived. So please listen carefully here. I don't want to be misunderstood. 
Let me say something firstly about the wrong way to take part in our sanctification. I call this the way of direct execution. <clears throat> There's an ancient and nasty tendency to envision our role in our sanctification as basically relying on our autonomy and willpower. Right? That was a perspective that the early church combated in what's known as the Pelagian heresy. Now let me break this down a little bit like Aesop with a fable. So gather around, children. We're going to have a fable now. The fable of the wind and the sun. The wind and the sun were disputing which one was stronger. And suddenly they saw a traveler coming down the road. And the sun said, I see a way to decide our dispute. Whoever can make that traveler take off his coat, that one's stronger. You begin. So the wind begins. The sun goes behind a cloud. The wind blows and blows and blows and tries to get that traveler to take off the coat. But the harder he blows, the more tightly the traveler wraps the coat around him. Till the wind is at last totally fatigued and in despair. And then the sun comes out and shines in all of its glory over that traveler who soon gets so hot he has to take his coat off. Our participating in our sanctification is not like the wind. Right? It's not through sheer will. If you go at it that way, you're going to be weakened, exhausted, and frustrated. That's a guaranteed path to discouragement. And I know because I have been down that path. You cannot simply will away greed, lust, self-interest, envy, anger, shame. You can't just turn those things off like a light switch. It's not how we work. If you try to do that, you're going to run into a wall over and over and over again. And you're going to be left despondent, thinking to yourself, I can't really change. You ever said those words? I can't really change. And so you'll give up. But the truth is, you're not giving up because, in fact, you can't be sanctified. You're giving up because you're going at it the wrong way. So what's the right way? I call this the indirect way. Our, con our contribution to our sanctification is a little more circuitous or indirect. It's real and it matters, right? But it's indirect, more like the sun in the fable. We must learn to cast ourselves continually in the reality of God's love. It needs to infuse our minds, our emotions, our will, our imagination. Now, what does that look like tangibly? Let me say two things. Number one, listen carefully. It's not so much about trying to empty yourselves of all the darkness in your lives as much as trying to fill yourself with grace and light and the story of God's love and commitment to us. That's what Romans 6, 19, that's what Paul is talking about there when he says, present yourselves as slaves to righteousness, which leads to sanctification. We've got to thrust ourselves every day in any and every way that we can into that which will fill our mind and our imagination with the gospel. And to the degree that you do this, you're taking part in your own sanctification in the most profitable way possible. Now, we know this, this pattern of, of how things are done. We know this. It's, it appears in other areas of our life. I mean, for example, if someone wants a girlfriend, right, probably not best to go at that directly. Yeah? Oh, it's back working again, right? That usually has the opposite effect. Desperately trying to find romance usually keeps romance out of reach. I learned this the hard way in fourth grade. I got dumped. It was devastating. 
and I really wanted another girlfriend, so I went out and tried to find a new lady, as one does. I was very direct about it. I said to my neighbor, Elise, Elise, will you be my girlfriend? And if so, will you sign this contract that you'll never dump me? Only I can dump you. That was my tactic. Very straightforward, taking matters into my own hands. I even drew up a little contract. Needless to say, it didn't pan out so well. Friends, holiness, sanctification is a byproduct of understanding, believing, and marveling in the gospel of grace. That's what you need to be doing. Second thing, practically, you got to take things out of your own hands and put them into other people's hands. We need each other in our sanctification. We don't go it alone. That is why God has given us each other. We got to learn to invite help in solidarity in our struggles against the desires and habits of sin in our life. We invite people to pray for us. We take part in mutual confession. And I don't mean confession that's general and abstract, but confession that is specific and personal and vulnerable. We encourage and exhort one another. We learn to be present with one another when those old demons are surfacing up again. We seek counsel or counseling, letting other people shine the light of the gospel into the dark places of our lives, which we can't always see that well and sometimes we're too scared to look into. Being here right now, this is how you do it. You want to work with God for your sanctification? Don't try to fix yourself by sheer will. Get other people involved. Whatever willpower you have, use it to get other people involved. In that sense, the best contribution you can make to your sanctification and me is to stop going at it alone. Folks, it's time to start using the HOV lane. Now, while our part in our sanctification is real and consequential, it is hardly the only factor at play in our sanctification. In fact, I would say it is the lesser factor of two great factors. So let's look in closing at this final word in our verse. Whoever follows me will have the light of life. Will have. Now, there's something to note here grammatically. The verb that is used, exo, it's the Greek verb exo, it means to surely have or possess, to surely have or possess. It's the word that's often used around marriage when a husband and wife have each other. This verb has an air of certainty to it. What are we being told here? We will be made holy. That's what we're being told. We will be made holy. Those who follow Christ will be sanctified. It's a pathologically confident statement. But here's what you need to see. Unlike that verb follow, we are not the implied agent of this verb will be. God is the agent, God himself. It's only because God works for our holiness that Jesus speaks with such confidence right here in John 8. See, Jesus knows us very well. Our sanctification is only guaranteed because of the presence of the light in the world and with us, and we are not the source of that light. We're not the source of it. God is. That is what St. Paul is talking about in Romans 8 when he talks about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He says this, listen to these beautiful words, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. That's crucial, that's indispensable, and that is something that God does. At our deepest level, God gives us a new sense of identity. 
He changes the defining orientation of our hearts and lives. Now, what's the effect of that? What happens when God does that? We desire to be more Christ-like. We actually care about it. We want it. We begin to grow and burn for it. And without that desire, nothing else really matters. See, all of our walking in the light, all of our following Jesus is a response to this. And this is more than standing in the light. This is the light coming into us. In Christian theology, this is called regeneration, the regeneration of a human heart. And it is something that God does through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us. That is the first item on the Holy Spirit's job description. That is what the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have been planning to do from all eternity. True sanctification at the foundation is always an outworking of this. For all you Latin sharks like Paul, it's the sin qua non. That doesn't happen. It's just business as usual. Because we're not born light carriers. But the light has come into the world and is eager to come into us. That's what Christmas is all about. So to summarize, the indwelling of the Spirit is the event that causes us to want to live for God, that shakes us out of that cozy indifference towards God that is so pervasive in a place like Vancouver, that disrupts our placid lack of desire for Christ-likeness. The book of Proverbs in the Old Testament tells us that everything a person does flows out of their heart. So if our heart is regenerated, then everything else will change. Jesus knows this. That's why he uses the language of will be. If the Spirit of God can raise Jesus Christ from the dead, you better believe that same Spirit can recreate your life. We will be sanctified. So when you feel discouraged or when you're in a moment of lapse, remind yourself that the very fact that you feel discouraged means that God is at work in your life. Now I'm finishing a bit of application for you. The big question. How do you know if you're being sanctified? How do you know if it's happening? How do you know you're being turned into the saint that you are, according to God? Let me mention two common signs. First one's very counterintuitive, so hear me carefully. You will have inner conflict moments. You will have inner conflict moments. <laughs> Pardon me, I know that was nasty. <clears throat> We said sanctification is a process. Holy desires, thoughts, and acts are displacing the darkness in us. Now, along the way, you can and you should expect some internal turmoil. The old and the new are at war with each other. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 7. We have desires and conflict. We all probably know this. Some of you might be feeling it right now. That's a healthy symptom of your spiritual condition. So do not, as many of you often do, and as I have done many, many times, interpret that conflict as a sign that something is wrong. To the contrary, recognize it as a sign that you are walking in the light and that the darkness is receding, but not without a fight. Don't be discouraged and give up when you feel that conflict. Be encouraged and persevere and be patient with yourselves, because sanctification is not a nap. And the second way that you know sanctification is at work in your life, you're going to have these who am I moments, these who am I moments, okay? 
These are little concrete instances when you see firsthand that your heart and your life are becoming holy, which is to say more like Christ in your character, your desires, your attitudes, your habits. It's going to look different for different people, but look for it. When you see it, you'll say, who am I? Because you're different than you once were. God has been at work. Let me illustrate this. Maybe instead of liking to play Monopoly, you increasingly prefer to play Pandemic, right? Which is not quite as ruthless and competitive. And maybe that reflects the way that you play life. Maybe you're more, you're more not the game life, but our lives, right? That was a good, that could have been a pun. Very good, huh? Maybe you're more willing to give the benefit of the doubt when people step on your toes, when there's a misunderstanding. You find it easier to assume the best rather than the worst. And so you don't walk out of your book club or your community house or your church or your baseball team. You learn to assume the best rather than the worst. Maybe you find more joy in giving than in receiving, and you desire generosity even if you can't always do it. Maybe you discover that using your words to grumble and slander isn't as satisfying as it once was. You'd rather use your words to bring life. And that's so important to you now that you're willing to learn and to attempt to handle conflict in a healthy, non-passive-aggressive way because that's often what leads us to slander and grumble. Maybe your propensity to compare yourself to other people and to build your sense of worth begins to get diminished. You stop believing the glory lie. The glory lie says there's only so much glory in the world, so get what you can before it's all gone. That lie is often at play within our competitive and comparisonal tendencies, but it's not within the kingdom of God. Or maybe you receive an antagonistic and hurtful email but you don't reply in kind. Instead, you pause and you pray and you send a flower back instead of another dagger. Those are the types of things that attest to our sanctification, those who am I moments, because you realize you've changed. You are changing. Look for them. With God at work in you, they will shine forth in certain ways because whoever follows Christ will have light in their life.